Welcome back to In the Queue, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. I'm your co-host, Andrew, and today's film really made me miss the era of the full orchestral score, rousing orchestral score throughout the film. I feel like the 90s were a good time for that, the 80s and the 90s. Well, um, you know, it's no accident because Thomas Newman did the music for this movie for which he was Oscar nominated. Indeed, for good reason, I think. Yeah, it's definitely a sweeping score. And I think it fits kind of the period aspect, too. Indeed. Because films about that time period from way back in the day often had that perpetual score that you heard like throughout the whole thing. It's true. Um, This is Phil, your other co-host. And I was really amused to see Eric Stoltz in this movie. (laughs) Because all I could think about whenever he was on screen was that in the same year he played a drug dealer in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I kept thinking about, it's, it's, it's a fucking black medical book. It's like the kind they give to nurses. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so today's film is Little Women uh, from 1994. That's the year that mm-hmm. uh, Phil just mentioned. And our guest today on the podcast is Sarah, who recommended this film to us. Sarah, say hi to everybody. Hello, everyone. Hey. Uh, we're very excited to have you on the podcast to talk about this movie, and uh, it should be a great conversation, I think. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to tell you how you can find us on the web. You can find us by searching for us uh, at our website, which is www.in-the-q, that's the letter q.com. You can find all of our posts there, and you can also leave comments about the podcast or recommendations for films that you would like to come on the show and talk about. You can do that same thing on our Facebook page by going to Facebook and searching for In The Queue, Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. Uh, You can also like our page there, and we'll start to fill up your Facebook feed with all kinds of interesting movie tidbits, which are a lot Mm -hmm. of fun. And uh, you can engage us in conversation on Twitter by searching for at ITQ Podcast. Uh, And you can subscribe to our podcast on any of your podcast aggregating apps, including iTunes, uh, Podcast. Uh, Overcast, any number of things. Uh, we're out there. We're easy to find in the queue, Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. That's pretty much the whole kit and caboodle. So without any further ado, let's talk about Little Women. What do those girls do over there all day? Over the mysteries of female life, there is drawn a veil, best left undisturbed. Hockey, revenge is mine, quoth he. You ought to publish it, Joe, really. Columbia Pictures invites you to share the holidays with a family of little women. Joe. If I were going to be a writer, I'd go to New York and pursue the stage. Are you shocked? Very. Meg. What's that strange smell? Beth. What's your Christmas wish? Perhaps we could send the Hummels our bread. They have so little and we have so much. Amy. I've waited my whole life to be kissed. And what if I miss it? I promise to kiss you before you die. Telegram. Your father's been wanted. (gasps) Through times of hardship. Times of joy. May I present myself 
as a loyal and very humble servant of the club. Four sisters followed their dreams. Joe, you have so many extraordinary gifts. How can you expect to lead an ordinary life? You should be writing from, from the depths of your soul. Found their love. Why must we marry at all? Why can't things just stay as they are? I have loved you since the moment I clapped eyes on you. Daddy, please don't ask me. Shared their tears. I love being home, but I don't like being left behind. Now I'm the one going ahead. <laughs> From girls to women. Didn't I say I would kiss you before you die? Surprise! Their destiny. You have a daughter. And a son. Was wherever their hearts would take them. Winona Ryder, Trini Alvarado, Samantha Mathis, Kirsten Dunst, Claire Danes, and Susan Sarandon. The story that has lived in our hearts for generations comes to the screen for the holidays. Oh, there you have it. Uh, all in all, a pretty good summary as as trailers of that time tended to do it summarizes the 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 gist of the film pretty well i think um but before we get into a, a more proper summary i guess uh sarah i wanted to give you a moment to tell us why this film why did you want to come on the show and talk about this particular movie a couple of reasons uh first of all i've known this movie probably since i was about 12 or 13 and mm -hmm. that's in a family that hardly ever watched movies <laughs> so <laughs> it was one of my early movies mm -hmm. and i've been watching it time and again since then and i never get tired of it and there are very few movies i can say that about so i feel like it has something and without them the training in analyzing movies, it's a little harder for me to say <laughs> what exactly, but sure, sure. I think it has something that manages to keep it at yeah. least relatable, if not fresh. And then there are just certain aspects that I like. I love history movies. I love costume dramas. Mm -hmm. I love movies with good music. And it's got all of those things and a strong female protagonist. So what more can you ask for? It does. It does have all those things indeed. Um, and it is, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, a classic, I would say, or at least one that is very highly regarded by many people, uh, mm -hmm. of a particular generation. I think those of us who grew up in the nineties, um, yep. it, it, it's, it's a bit of a, a nostalgic film, uh, for a lot of us. And it's, uh, it's one that I had actually never seen before doing this podcast. Uh, it's, uh, it's funny that you uh, kind of attribute it to a film of our generation, one that we've all seen. But I, too, had not seen it until this podcast. Well, uh, but you can definitely, when you watch it, if you've seen a lot of movies, and if, especially if you've seen a lot of films from that period, you can sort of kind of get a feel for uh, sort of uh, the headspace of, of where the director was. Sure. You can sort of get a feel for the music helps kind of, uh, and of course the familiar faces help. I sure, think I've seen sure. all of the major players in this movie in many other uh, films. 
Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I hadn't seen it either. But uh, And also, I have to confess, I hadn't read the source material either. Likewise. I'd like to postulate something a little bit daring and go out on a limb and say, <laughs> you two are both male. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> this is a movie where I pretty much can guarantee anybody in my age range who is female has seen it and probably likes it, especially if they're bookish or ever aspired to be a writer or ever read the book. Sure, sure. <laughs> and outside of that, you know, if they're not as bookish or, to be honest, if they're male, they usually haven't watched it. Or, or if they're not gung-ho, diehard Gabriel Byrne fans. Hey. hey. I had no idea who any of the actors were in this movie, <laughs> except for within this movie. Uh, because oh, wow. I came from that household that watched fewer movies. So I learned the characters, the, these actors, as these characters. And then when I watched another movie with them, I went, oh, wait, that's Joe. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I know her. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, oh, my goodness. Batman was was so well-mannered yeah that weirded <laughs> me out when i found out that uh went on to become batman after this <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh it's quite a change and in fact as somebody who is not generally speaking a big christian bale fan uh i quite liked him in this film <laughs> oh um, i mean he he's he's a fine uh strong leading man but i was really impressed with his acting in that scene when he uh, spoiler alert, I guess, if people haven't seen it. <laughs> All the men listening. But uh, the scene when he is spurned by Joe, mm. and he has to, and you can see how hurt he is, but even though he's not outwardly crying, but yeah. you can see that he's wounded, and his, his pride is wounded, and he kind of yeah. uh, has to sort of deal with this unexpected outcome. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, it, it's it's also some of the most alive I've ever seen Christian Bale. He usually tends to play people who, who are very, uh, I don't know, reserved or emotionally stunted or turned inward. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was nice to see him playing somebody who had a little bit more life to him and even a little bit of mischievousness. Mischievousness. Sure. You know, and- turns him into a bit of a heartthrob for everybody my age. Sure, sure. Well, he, he was. I mean, wasn't he in uh, Newsies around the same time? Yeah, he was. He was. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, let me ask you, as someone who has both read the source material and seen the film many times, how uh, true is it to the source material? Because I know that especially for people who might be a little bit more bookish, uh, it can be a bit of a sticking point when movie adaptations are made that the uh, it did not translate in the way that that you might prefer to this big screen, but neither of us has read the book. So all we have is the movie. Well, and you and I have discussed this and you know, I'm a bit of a stickler. It's true. I know. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I really am. Uh, This one transfers. Well, there are definitely things that they left out due Mm -hmm. to time and medium change restraints that didn't transfer well to a movie form or just were not as necessary in the time constraints. Sure. I'm not as big a stickler about things being left out because as long as you keep the salient plot points in and don't change anything, I feel like you get the meat of the book. This one does a very good job of containing the heart that's displayed in the book. It's sure. really crucial that all of the characters, all all of the females in the book have these intricate relationships with each other. And that came across beautifully. 
and the sentiment came across beautifully. So I think it did a really good job. It didn't change anything that was crucial. It just left out things that weren't as crucial. Well, that's good. I mean, that's good to know. It's good to hear. Um, I know that uh, that is always my defense of the Joe Wright version of Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Uh, which, one, which version is that? That's the Kira Knightley one. Uh, oh, bleh. See? See? There it is. Um, I think that people only say bleh because the Colin Firth version exists. And if it didn't exist, yeah. everyone would love the Kira Knightley version because it's no. amazing. No, I just don't that's like Kira Knightley. That's my problem. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a different thing altogether then. Yes, <laughs> and, and perfectly fair. Is. No, they did some pretty good stuff in that film. I just didn't like Karen Knightley. I just don't like Karen Knightley. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. She's not my Elizabeth Bennett. Hashtag not my Elizabeth Bennett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I really liked uh, all of the performances in this film. And it was great to see a lot of these actors uh, fresh, uh, in, in a manner of speaking. I mean, as, as someone who grew up watching, you know, Winona Ryder in movies like Beetlejuice and Heathers and watching Kirsten Dunst and everything that Kirsten Dunst has done. And around this time, Interview with the Vampire, which was her big breakout role. Um, Samantha Mathis in my favorite guilty pleasure, Broken Arrow, of course. Uh, <laughs> also, um, uh, she was in uh, Pump Up the Volume with Christian Slater, yeah. which is a movie that we used to rent when, we, when me and my sister were kids. And it was a major... Uh, milestone of sorts because she actually gets nude in that film, <laughs> um, which as an impressionable 10 year old made an impression on me. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine, Phil. I would imagine. Um, we, watched, we once watched a movie that had Francis of Assisi in it, and there was a rear view of him being nude, and I was about 13 or 15 at the time when we watched it, so I understand that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, Gabriel Byrne, of course. Uh, it, it's just funny because these are the these are movies. You know, I, I watched uh, the heck out of Miller's Crossing, for instance, um, around this time. Uh, mm. I was uh, really into. Uh, I was just probably shortly after this getting into the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So Susan Sarandon was a big uh, hero of mine at that point in time. <laughs> it's just funny because going back to it twenty some odd years later, um, having never seen it, it was great to see all of these actors in a new context and one that uh that felt like it just felt new and interesting that experience of going to something that you perhaps should have seen and never did but it feels like you're sort of dropping back into that time and that place well i think that a a well-done period piece is really ageless you know sure and sure that's certainly what this film is it really transports you into that lifestyle this is in the post-Civil War um, in Connecticut, am I right? Yeah, uh, uh, Massachusetts. Yeah. Massachusetts. Massachusetts, yeah. okay. And, and, you know, the, uh, the, the, the ever-present snow, there's a very early little detail that I really liked where somebody, before entering a home, uh, you know, slams his foot against some kind of little piece of metal to knock off the snow. And, like, that little attention to detail is what really makes a period piece great. And we should mention the director, Gillian Armstrong, mm-hmm. who is an Australian woman who uh, became internationally famous very early in her career 
with a film called My Brilliant Career, yeah, yeah, um, which was actually in competition at the Cannes Film Festival, and it also launched the career of Judy Davis, who's a great actress. And so, um, in 1994, Armstrong was brought in, and I don't know how if that was a controversial decision or not to bring in this director. It probably wasn't because she'd already proven herself many times. Sure, sure. Um, and she, to work within the Hollywood system, so she does a great job, but she really kind of handles the material really well, I thought, and it just has so much great attention to detail, so much period detail, and I kind of felt like I could sort of see what I was in for early on, because in this, there's a scene where all of the younger sisters and their mother gather together to read a letter yeah. uh, from their dad, yeah, um, and you can see, like, Jillian Armstrong composed the shot so that every sister's face occupied a different aspect of the frame as they all sat and listened to Susan Sarandon read the letter. Yeah. That's and, an iconic shot. Yeah, it's iconic and you can you can already tell that each one of these sisters is going to get their due in the story and they're all we're all going to see their arc. We're all going to see what happens to them and it's going to be you know as a, again a very good attention to detail. Yeah, yeah, and I think that on uh on the topic of Jillian Armstrong uh I think just like our last listener's choice, which was uh, a film from a female perspective directed by a female, this is the same thing. And I think that the uh, part of the reason that this is probably as successful, as you say, Sarah, with uh, women of a certain generation, um, I think that this story uh, greatly benefits from being told by a woman. Um, I think that it is... Uh, it's very, there's, there's very much, um, of a, uh, an empathetic, uh, presentation of all of the various different situations that the, the sisters find themselves in, um, each of them sort of living their own life and having their own set of, uh, uh, problems and, and, uh, developments in their lives. Uh, but each of them is is really handled very deftly and very with a very light touch and uh, one that really has an understanding of the psyche of all these characters. And I'm not sure that you would have gotten the same thing from a male director. Well, and I think that it is partly that the source material was written by a woman well, yeah, yeah. and had a lot of that in it. And the type of life events that these characters encounter are very much the, as, as you put it, the empath, empathy style mm-hmm. of events. I mean, you know, they're not going out and fighting battles while it's still the Civil War at the beginning of the film. They are dealing with home life, dealing with siblings, mm-hmm. dealing with people, and all of those empathetic situations that were important to a female on the home front in that era. Yeah, yeah, for from sure. From a female perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, you should also you should also note that the the adaptation by Robin Swicord was written by a woman too, so here you've got the the novel, the adaptation, and the direction all being done by women, and so that kind of you can't help but have a female perspective when that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think that uh, you know, I, I, I what you were saying, Sarah, about this sort of being the kind of life on the home front. I think that it is uh, presented. Uh, neither as uh, sort of grossly heroic or as 
mundane. Like they they live interesting and full and rich lives, um, and this is just the lives that they lead. The circumstances has dictated that they're in this place at this time, but the film never uh, it never preaches anything. It, there's no like great moral teaching. Uh, there's there's no axe to grind in yeah, the movie. Yeah. Which is fascinating given Ooh. the history of the author of the original novel because she kind of did that a lot and her era did it even more than she did. So the fact that she managed to take source material um, which was largely biographical sure. and back it off slightly from the extremely moralistic writing style of the period mm. into something that can uh, survive and become a classic and refresh every generation or so. I mean, this is not the first Little Women film. No, no. There, there's there's two or three others at least. Well, there's one with Catherine and, Hepburn in, from the 40s, I believe. And there's, I think, an earlier one as well. Yeah. Um, but it's material that stays fresh. So I think that the original author uh, when Louisa May Alcott wrote this in the 1860s or 70s, uh, it might have even been a little later than that, she managed to divorce herself somewhat from that moralistic attitude. Because mm. that was, I mean, if you've ever read anything written in the 1860s, <laughs> oh my goodness, they're plowing morality down your throat the entire time. Sure, so sure. It's a different perspective that she herself took that I think managed to establish itself very nicely. Well, yeah, and people don't like being uh, preached at in that manner. They don't like being told what they're doing wrong or what they should be doing necessarily. So that probably accounts for it being as uh, uh, fresh now as it was 100 and, you know, 20, 130 years ago. Although the most popular book when she was a child was Pilgrim's Progress, which is pretty much one entire giant preachy allegory. Sure. Sure, but it, you know, everybody everybody grows up to rebel against the generation before them, right? Isn't that right? Right. <laughs> it's also interesting how it, it is fresh, and you know, never mind that the novel was written so long ago, but even some movies that were made in 1994 are no longer fresh. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it's like, but I mean, think of the scene when Joe goes to New York, and she's she, she's a, a part of that discussion of these streetwise young men who are talking about how it's unfair that women yeah. should not have the right to vote. Um, and they're having this progressive feminist discussion about what women's rights should, should be. So that still hold that kind of discussion still holds up in movies today. Uh, it and, still holds up. And yeah. they ignore the woman in the room. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, <laughs> well importantly, they are philosophizing <laughs> at, on a theoretical level about it without any lived experience being consulted. So when she does pipe up and, and give her two cents, it's very uh, gratifying. It's a very gratifying yeah. moment. But you're right. They are themes that do transcend the time in which it was written. Yeah. And I think that focusing on the family issues and the relationship issues does that as well. So it, it takes it out of a specific time period and makes it human. Yeah. Sure. And the the journey of Joe in particular is totally relatable to anybody in any generation because it's about somebody who grows up in a smallish environment, who has these ambitions, who has these talents of writing in this case. And we see them mature. We see them go off and move to the big city. We see them uh, self-actualize. And it's the kind of great story that does hold up over time and I think is relatable to both genders. Oh, yeah. 
yeah, no question about it. Um, yeah, it's 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 almost like the the Carrie Bradshaw of the eighteen hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Um, no, for, forget I said that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wanted to uh, ask both of you if there was a particular moment, because there were a lot of really great acting moments in this film, I thought, and there are a lot of like very uh, tender moments uh, and really nice uh, little just uh, areas where the director allows the actors to kind of breathe a little bit. I wanted to know if you guys had any favorite moments uh in the film, because I've, I've got one or two that I think were really excellent, but I want to hear what you guys have. I'll let Phil go first. I have lots of favorites. Mm. Well, most of mine um, center around Winona Ryder's performance. Yeah, uh, she, was, she was really great in this, and her performance only got better as the movie went on, I thought. Because I, I don't exactly know how old Joe is when we first meet her, um, but the actress was 23. And we see her convincingly play a young girl and then convincingly play someone of her own age. And you can sort of just kind of feel how the life experience that she's had has affected her and matured her. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess if I had to pick one moment that stands out, it would be the scene when Winona Ryder rescues uh, Kirsten Dunst out of the ice. uh, Oh, yeah. Because it's... the the transition in her character in Joe March the character of Joe March is very believable but also very poignant because Joe is furious at her younger sister for destroying her manuscript and yet when her younger sister is in a life-threatening situation Joe immediately drops all of her resentment and rushes to save her and that may be a, a writing moment as well as a great acting moment. But to me, that kind of really st- struck a chord because as a child with your siblings, you know, you often get mad at them and you often resent them. And, you, of course, you know, uh, you often hold grudges. But in that moment when they need your help, you know, there's no question about what you have to do. So it, sure. it can kind of just change everything. Sure. Sure. Sarah, do you have a... If you could pick a, a favorite, I know I'll, that's hard I'll to pick do. One. I'll pick one. Um, actually, it's the scene with, as much as I loved Joe as a character, and I actually am starting to really love Meg as a character too, mm. um, the scene that I particularly like is actually the one where Beth, the second youngest child, goes to visit the sick German family and oh, yeah, doesn't yeah. speak a word of German. And they are panicking they're all ill the baby is burning up with a fever the mother shoves the baby into beth's arms beth has no idea what to do and um, i actually watched the director's commentary on this and it turns out that because of the intensity of the situation and claire danes was actually fairly young at the time of the filming of this movie and because the baby actually started wailing um, she she was not faking that shaking chin and beginning of tears. That actually was something that came upon the actress, and they decided not to cut or reshoot wow. because it had touched the actress so much. So the fact that the scenario was so well played that it it transcended acting for a minute there that that got to me before I knew that, but knowing that actually made it even more poignant. 
That is good to know because I thought for sure Jillian Armstrong told her to do that. <laughs> uh, but it's it's so much more satisfying to know it was just a natural reaction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if I had to pick a favorite moment, there's a couple, but uh, you know I really loved uh, Claire Danes' work in this film. I really loved Susan Sarandon's work in this film a lot. Um, but I would also return to Joe uh, when she is with Bear uh, at the opera, and they're sitting in the in the wings above the opera, and they're watching this opera, and he's sort of quoting, you know, he's translating the opera to her in a very romantic way, and there he reaches over and holds her hand, and that whole thing happens, and they move together for a kiss momentarily and then a stagehand who's about to go and make some thunder noises with a big piece of metal uh <laughs> he he sort of stumbles it breaks up their kiss and there's this wonderful wonderful moment with Winona Ryder where she sort of laughs it off and looks away and then looks back with this like beautiful sort of longing in her eyes like asking like without saying anything, just sort of asking, like, Take two. Sh- shall we finish what we started <laughs> kind of a thing? And it, it's just like, it was such a wonderful, like, very subtle, very moving uh, acting moment. And I just thought um, it, it was really nice. I, it was a really, really great moment where the uh, the performances were allowed to really, you know, let's do what the actors are there for. <laughs> hey, I wanted to ask you, Sarah, uh, Bears... Yeah portrayal in this movie how do you feel about it did it uh does it ring true to the source material or does it ring true to the vision of the original book you think that's actually a way more complicated question than you know (laughs) um because 90 percent of the material in this book is autobiographical so amy did fall into the ice and the characters who died did die and you know all that kind of thing Almost all of it is autobiographical. Professor Bear didn't exist. Mm. The author made it up so that she could have a happily ever after marriage ending for herself because her character is Joe. She pay, she sure. based Joe on herself. And Joe didn't get married. Joe was a spinster. So I have always found that even in the source material, Professor Bear reads a little stiff compared to the ah. other characters. I have never liked him that much as a character. I think the actor did the best he could with the <laughs> material he had. I really do. I mm-hmm. I think he did a good job of it. I just have always found that character stilted compared to the rest of the characters. Oh, that's so interesting. And, yeah. And I think it's because she was inventing her happily ever after and was not basing it off of... Well, okay, I don't know that there wasn't a Professor Bear for sure, but I do know that she never married and never dated. So he was at least never romantically involved with her on that level. That's very interesting. If there was one. That's very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, I I think I love Gabriel Byrne. Uh, I especially love Gabriel Byrne doing a German accent, Um, which I I just thought, you know, he did a great job in this film. But as you say, his character is a very stiff character. I attributed it to merely him being a German professor and that's sort of being the 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 stereotype that gets applied, you know. Um, well, and I think that's how the original character was written. Well, that's yeah, that's interesting. Very interesting. Well, it's good to know that he translated from the book to the movie, but uh, interesting <laughs> yes. to know that he he was the only fully fictional character that we know of. 
I think he did a, a really good job of it. I mean, they're, one of my favorite scenes with him is where uh, Joe is coming down the stairs of the boarding house and he is crawling, chasing the two children who oh, are yeah. the daughters of the boarding house owner yeah. and chasing them and making them giggle until they finally get to his pockets and steal the treats he had for them. He <laughs> enlivened this character and he gave it depth and warmth as much as he could. I really think he did a great job with it. Yeah. But it's yeah. it's just a stiff character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Always was. Yeah. Well, I definitely wanted to circle back around to what I mentioned in my opening comment, which is the score. Uh man, I like it it really made me consciously aware of the fact that I don't hear scores like this in film anymore. Um at least not very often. Uh even in the period pieces, the scores tend to be forgettable or not particularly uh moving or uh i mean i mean this, this was certainly are, are very very often kind of uh unmelodic yeah not that you need you always need to have a melody but that you need to have some kind of a commitment to your music some kind of a theme of some sort and very often like the music in, in these days is there's just no gravitas behind it there's no nothing memorable anyway go ahead yeah no no i i agree that's that was basically the point that i was making which is that it's yeah. just it's not as um it, it, these kinds of scores you know i mean in the, the, the we're still living in the uh, very early wake of john williams at this point um you know he was still composing some of his greatest scores schindler's list was just the year before this and that of course is one of his greatest works and uh, i feel like there was you know, when I think of Miramax movies, when I think of uh, period pieces from this time, when I think of the uh, Merchant and Ivory productions and everything, they have these really lush, wonderful, rich, full scores uh, to accompany these lush, wonderful, rich films. And uh, it was nice to hear that. <laughs> it was nice to, to it was it was a nice film to listen to. It was a nice film to uh, get caught up in the music. You know, the music it doesn't indicate too hard it doesn't push you to feel a, a particular way necessarily but it does excite you it does mm -hmm. engage you emotionally with the film and that that's something that uh i feel like scoring has moved into a more a like let's work on the subconscious instead of the conscious level <laughs> that's a good point um and i wonder if if uh, thomas newman read little women in preparation for writing the music uh, that's a good question. Do you know Sarah? No. Uh, <laughs> I know lots of odd facts, but not that one. <laughs> Although it did strike me, I was when I rewatched it this afternoon. I wrote myself a list of things I wanted to make sure I touched on if I if it fit into what we were talking about. And the first thing I wrote down was that it has a stirring soundtrack. Mm -hmm. um, and not only that, it actually ended up influencing my. Uh, predilection for certain hymns and oh. was a reason actually that I requested a particular hymn at our wedding was because it's the one played uh, at the wedding in the beginning of the second half and yeah. has stuck with me all these years so when we were looking at hymns I'm like can we can we please include this one in our wedding <laughs> make sure that this one's gonna happen yeah no that's that's yeah. great um love it when a movie can do that and sort of influence real life um, I danced to the Godfather waltz at my wedding. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew was there because he was my best man. I was there. I was there. 
Um, we danced to How Much Was the Doggy in the Window. Uh, <laughs> but that was because it was the first waltz we'd ever danced to. It was a long story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. That's great. Um, yeah, this. Uh, I think overall I really enjoyed this film. It was nice. Uh, it was nice to, to return to something that I had always intended to see, but it never, you know, it just never gotten around to it. Um, and I'm glad that I enjoyed it as much as I did because uh, uh, I, I don't, you know, sometimes you return to a film from 24 years ago and 23 years ago, and it it turns out to be horribly dated and not not great. <laughs> right. Uh, and this was not that case, uh, as as Phil mentioned earlier, and Sarah, you too. There's a sort of timelessness to this that uh, uh, works in his favor, and uh, I really liked all the people who in it, in it. I thought they gave good performances. It was a fun film. The one thing that we haven't talked about that I would like to mention sure. briefly is costume and hair. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do my own Civil War sewing, so I've done a fair amount of research on Civil War costuming long after I had already fallen in love with this movie. Sure. So it's one that I came back to with new knowledge and watched. And what I found fascinating is that sometimes when you watch a, a period piece, you can tell when it was filmed. Even if it's otherwise great, you can sure. tell. Like Lion and Winter, <laughs> interesting movie, 70s hair. Like straight up 70s hair. Sure, sure. This movie filmed in the 90s actually does a pretty good job. I mean, the costuming, there's a really interesting level of detail, attention to detail, which we saw in other aspects too. Um, not just character and acting and the little thing like you mentioned with uh, kicking the snow off your boots, but things like the fact that the shoulder seams on Civil War dresses are dropped a little further down, where the waistline falls, things like that. They paid attention to that. They also paid attention to the fact that this family was less well off. So there's yeah. a dress that occurs early in the movie that gets remade and is used by a different character later in the movie at the same dress just gets tweaked a little bit. Sure. But where they fall flat is the hair. Oh yeah. It there's a couple of the hairstyles that are good and a couple where it just not <laughs> they just miss the mark. Um the the sort of classic low bun that most of them wear most of the time is totally fine. But at one point Susan Sarandon wears a 1980s snood, which is that sort of um web lace hairnet thing. It sure. didn't didn't exist back then. They had fancy hairnets, not like that. Very stereotypical reenactorism, um, and then kids having their hair completely open when it's not curled. So these aren't huge factors. I mean, obviously, <laughs> they did not put me off the film. Sure, okay? sure. I, I used to like the movie, but not anymore. <laughs> I know. I just yes. spoiled it for you. I apologize. Jeez. No, but they, their attention the to same. detail, <laughs> their attention to detail was really good. And the yeah. only place they flubbed what really was, you know, about half the hairstyle. Well, I would say that that probably is can also partially be attributed, uh, at least in the costuming department, to the fact that Colleen Atwood designed the costumes for this film. And she is a multiple uh, Academy Award winning uh, costume designer who does. Oh, absolutely. So much, so much great work in, in Hollywood and does like, as far as I can tell, almost every period piece that, that they, they throw out there. You know, I've I've felt something similar for a long time. Where I you watch a period film like Doctor Zhivago, for example, which was made in 1965, and 
or other films that were made in the 70s. And, like, you know, the actors won't shave their sideburns. They won't get a proper period right. haircut. And that does stand out. You do notice things like that, especially with the movie that you really love and you you know so much about. You've seen it many times. It mm-hmm. can kind of stick out. Um, so I understand your <laughs> your attention to detail. <laughs> and I mean, it's like I said, the, the general shape of it, of the hairstyles are actually closer than a lot of period pieces that aren't going to age well. But they goofed in a couple of places. Right. It's now, not if like you a... want to watch period sideburns. There, there's movies I can recommend. Sure. Sure. And I was going to say <laughs> that... like good, good period sideburns, like actually oh, yeah. Mr. Turner, like, I would realistic. say probably. Did you see Mr. Turner? Gettysburg. Oh, Gettysburg. Gettysburg. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and this isn't, you know, this isn't quite probably the level of detail that something like a merchant ivory production would have. Like, uh, their films tend to be meticulously detailed down to the smallest thing in every way. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you can get bogged down in that though. Like the age of innocence, Scorsese goes like way overboard, like with like every single detail you can imagine. Yeah. And kind of at the expense of the the momentum of the story. Sure. There's a, there's a set of movies, uh, the, the Horatio Hornblower movies, which is based on Mm. a set of books by Forrester. They are, I think, filmed by A&E, mm-hmm. who generally have a good track record with costuming and period detail without getting too bogged down in it. Um, so that's one that they do the hair right. They do the, the clothing right. They do the bosun's whistle calls on the uh, on the ships correctly, oh, nice. which nice. only sticks out if you've listened to bosun whistle calls or got <laughs> annoyed by the fact that in, uh, which movie is it? Uh, the other really famous movie about ships. Master and Commander, Far Side of the World? Exactly. Master ah, and Commander. In that one, they only ever have one bosun's call, no matter where they are, whether they're at a dock or whether they're out in the middle of the ocean, and it's captains coming aboard. Now, where he's coming aboard from, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, for, I forgive that movie any of the small details that get wrong because it's such a good movie. But it doesn't uh, end. Uh, but I love it. I love it so well. It doesn't end because there's 20 other books in that series. I know. Um, you know. I know. No, watch the Horatio Hornblower ones. They're way better. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, so, <laughs> Phil, it sounds like you like the film as well. I liked it. I was surprised how much I liked it. <laughs> I was thinking, like, okay, I'm going to watch Little Women for the podcast. Um, how is this going to work exactly? Am I? Is it going to keep my attention? Am I going to identify with the characters? And it did on all counts. I thought it was very very entertaining and and uh, fun to watch the acting was all good it was a window into the lives of these women characters that i enjoyed so kudos to julian armstrong and everyone else involved indeed kudos to louisa may alcott uh, yeah <laughs> well, uh, thanks for letting me select it because it was a genre yeah. that i hadn't seen as much on your podcast and thought was uh, worth taking a look at yeah absolutely i mean we we welcome uh broadening the the scope of the podcast uh, and that's why we have the listeners requests we want people to to come in with uh uh the things that they love and talk about them so uh sarah you've got the last word if there's anything more you want to say about the film um it ages well and i love it (laughs) i recommend it to anybody (laughs) great great uh you heard it here um so thanks again sarah for coming on the podcast it was a joy to have you and talk about this film thanks for uh forcing uh two uh men who grew up in the 90s uh to watch this film that they probably should have seen years ago 
and uh, yeah, it's uh, it was it was really really a, a joy to have you. So, uh, listeners, please join us for our next episode when we will be talking about something very different from this: <laughs> <laughs> the new release, Alien Covenant, uh, the apology for Prometheus, maybe. Yeah, when are we going to get the apology for Alien Covenant, though? Well, that's uh, that seems to be the critical consensus thus far. So, uh, it may be a total disaster, but. Uh, Ridley Scott disasters are always still fun to watch. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be talking about that on our next podcast, and we will catch you next time. See you then.